Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your for your love and for your mercy and your watch care, and we ask that your spirit will be poured out upon us, draw us close to you, and and make us effective in sharing this final message to the world that you'll come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So our lesson this week is lesson six in the uh, quarterly family seasons, and the title is The Royal Love Song. Uh, I guess I should give a uh, warning for age-appropriate material, as the entire lesson is going to be on marital intimacy and human sexuality. So uh, if you're watching online with young children, you'll have to take that into account. First paragraph, it says, Among the seasons of life, one of the big ones is marriage. Again, not everyone marries, but for those who do, marriage brings special challenges and special blessings as well. Among those blessings is the wonderful gift of sexuality. What a powerful expression of love this gift in the right time in the right place can be. How did God originally design marriage to function? In God's design, was there a hierarchy in marriage with one spouse ruling over another? Well, uh, this is out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, and it says, God himself gave Adam a companion. He provided a helpmeet for him, a helper corresponding to him, one who was fitted to be his companion and who could be one with him in love and sympathy. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relationship. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it. Therefore, man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one. God celebrated the first marriage. Thus, the institution has for its origin, originator the creator of the universe. Marriage is honorable. It was one of the first gifts of God to man, and it is one of the two institutions that, after the fall, Adam brought with him beyond the gates of paradise. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relation, marriage is a blessing. It guards the purity and happiness of the race. It provides for man's social needs. It elevates the physical, the intellectual, and the moral nature. So, how did God design the marriage relationship to function? Equal companions. Yeah, I love that. Two partners, other-centered love. Neither one ruling over the other. What happened? And I really want you to understand that sin infected their hearts and selfishness, fear and selfishness became the prime motivators, which were not God's design. God's design was love and trust. But love and trust got displaced by fear and selfishness. And then when God said to Eve that her desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her, was God making a design update? Was God saying, well, my original design really wasn't quite right. I, I, I need to have men rule over their wives. Was he making a design update? Was God saying, Eve, you sinned and deceived your husband, so now you need a minder, a handler, a supervisor, someone to think for you and tell you what you need to do. So I'm instituting a new rule that you must submit to your husband and let him tell you what to do. Do you know it's presented that way? Was that what God was saying? No, God was simply, I want you to understand, when God said, Eve, your desire is going to be for your husband. He's going to rule over you. God was merely diagnosing slash describing or proclaiming reality, how it will now function. Eve, 
Love and trust no longer operates in the hearts of human beings. Fear and selfishness now are the prime motivators. And in the hearts of beings, when fear and selfishness are the prime motivators, here's what happens. The strong will dominate the weak, and the weak will seek protection from the strong. So Eve, you're going to have a desire to be protected, and the one you seek protection from is going to dominate you. He's going to rule over you. This was not a prescription by God. This was a description of what sin has done to destroy what God designed. So, does God want people in this world of sin to continue to live lives dominated by fear and selfishness? What does God want for each individual human heart? How would you describe it? What does he want for your heart and every other human heart? What's he want? Healing. Healing. And there's many metaphors of Scripture for that. Rebirth. Renewal, recreation, circumcision of the heart, writing the law on the heart and mind. A lot of metaphors for it, but he's wanting to displace fear and selfishness and write in love and truth, love and trust, right? Would having the law of God written on the heart and restoring love and trust move us back towards God's original design? then what would marriage look like? Should our marriages, as we come to love and trust God, as as He works in our life to write His law in our heart and mind, should our marriages look more like God designed Eden to look? With equality of the partners, neither one ruling over the other, neither one living in fear of the other. Would this translate beyond the marriage to how we treat other people? Would it translate to how we have leadership roles in the church? <laughs> yes? Yes? I'd like to bring this around to your thought about the cycle of giving. So we think of human hierarchy as the people in power being dominating. But if we look at God's hierarchy, the higher you are, the more sacrificial and the more giving you are. And so, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow because he emptied himself and became a servant. No, this is exactly right. And Jesus said, he that is greatest among you, let him be your servant. So the, in God's hierarchy, the higher you are and the more power you have, the more unselfish and the more giving you become. And this gives great meaning to the verse that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Right, and I like this. And it goes to talents and abilities. The more talents and abilities you have that have been given to you by God, the more responsibility to help and bless others with those abilities, right? The more you have to give to others. Isn't that, isn't that true? And the most sacrificial person is God himself, and he's the one with the most power. And that was, of course, the design. Eve was created to be the recipient of Adam's self-sacrificial love because Adam couldn't enter into the fullness of God-like love without someone for Adam to serve, without someone for Adam to sacrifice himself for. And she was to receive that love and give it back in loving service to Adam, a never-ending circle of love. And so the purpose of this was this unity of other-centered love and service with complete perfect trust without fear. Yeah. So do we see that this would translate into how the church is to function and leadership roles in the church. Or, 
should I say, do we see this so-called headship theology in which people are put into leadership roles not based on character, not based on gifting of the Holy Spirit, not based on God's calling, but simply based on gender, is not biblical. It's not part of God's design. God designed equality of human beings submitting to the one true head, Jesus Christ. The Jewish tradition of the Song of Songs is considered an allegory of God's relationship with his people. The first and second century, um, in the first and second century, Rabbi Akiva, when asked if uh, they should accept this book or reject this book as part of the Jewish canon, he, he said, quote, God forbid for all, uh, if whether they should reject it. God forbid for all of eternity in its entirety is not as worthy as the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but Song of Songs is the holy of holies. What do you think when you hear that phrase, the holy of holies? What comes to mind? The most holy place in the sanctuary. And when you think of that holy of holies and that, that, that apartment of the sanctuary, what do you typically think is happening or transpiring in that part of the sanctuary? One day, one day a year, the high priest enters that apartment for atonement. Is there anything when you read about the Song of Solomon, the book of Solomon, Solomon that you actually think that's the most holy place, that's the, the, the Day of Atonement? Is that what you're thinking when you read Song of Solomon? No. <laughs> Not typically, is it? No. But, but what is actually happening in marital intimacy? The two are becoming one, one which is actually what atonement is, at one mint. So, so why is it that we don't see the Song of Solomon as the most holy place where atonement or atonement is happening? Why don't we, why do we not see it that way? Why, why when we think of the Holy of Holies, let's put, flip this question back, let's flip, flip it around. Why is it when you think of Holy of Holies, you don't think of marital intimacy? Why is it when you think of the, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, you're not thinking of love, trust, self-surrender, unity of hearts and minds? Why, why are we not thinking that? Well, for one thing, you haven't heard many sermons through our years preached that the intimacy of marriage is like the most holy place. That's for one thing. And secondly, of all, I think we always, at least I have when I read the Song of Solomon, I think of it more in a, not a spiritual sense, but in a worldly sense of what we think of as sex. So I don't think of it as a most holy. But now when you presented it like that, yes. So think about what's happening on the Day of Atonement. Jesus is cleansing a bride. He's bringing hearts and minds of his people into complete unity, intimacy, oneness with him. For those who trust Jesus, he enters the most holy place of our beings and removes all defects and impurities and instills his perfection, his love, his goodness, his life into our hearts and minds. This is union of hearts and minds coming into one. Can you see how sexual intimacy in which love and trust, in in a union of love and trust during sexual intimacy, life is deposited from one being into another being to bring forth a new life is a beautiful metaphor for God's plan to save us. In love and trust, we open our hearts to Christ who deposits his life in us and we are reborn 
with a new life, when a new life begins, thus this is the uh, becoming one. In marriage with spouses is the union. In Christianity, when we come into that unity with God, this is real openness. This is being known. This is healing and restoration. It is beautiful, lovely, wonderful, a mystery. So Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Do you see the metaphorical union and giving of new life to bring forth new life? Yes. I suspect that part of the issue that we have here... We see the Song of Solomon as a standalone. We see um, Christ and the bridegroom um, coming for the church with the uh, coming late at night and the and the wise and foolish virgins. We see those as kind of standalones. But if you take a look at uh, the law at Sinai, that was a marriage ceremony. If you take a look at the traditional marriage ceremony, we have a number of things down through the Old Testament which we kind of skip over, where we see those types of of portrayals of the marriage and Christ um, symbolized there together, tied together in 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 a unit. Now, I think that's a very good insight that we often see these as standalone, disconnected from the other portions of Scripture, not integrated at all. Yeah. So what obstructs God's plan to accomplish this cleansing, healing, restoration, new life in the hearts of people? What, what obstructs it? What do you think is the primary obstacle that humans have struggled with since sin? Pride and selfishness. Fear and selfishness is the disease. What's the obstacle to healing the disease? We believe lies. We believe lies. If you think of a physical intimacy in a marriage relationship, what is the obstacle to giving your heart to someone in genuine love and commitment. What's the obstacle to doing that? Lack of trust. So the obstacle after we're fear and fearful and selfish is we don't trust God to give our hearts to him. And why don't we trust him? Because we have lies about him that we believe that keep us from trusting him. And what do you think is the number one lie in human history? In my view, from the began in heaven, it's going to end on the same issue. Remember this document, guys? Hopefully you're sharing with people. Got a couple quotes in here about how the things will end up uh, resolving on the same issue began with in heaven, which is a question of God's law. How do you understand God's law? How does it function? Does it function like the creator, the designer, the builder of reality, the protocols in which life is built? Or is it simply a system of rules? And I'm going to suggest to you this God construct as a rule giver who gives rules no different than we do, thus he becomes the source of inflicted punishment. Then we look at the Day of Atonement. Instead of a day of love, trust, openness, search me and see, come into union with our Creator, instead of a day of love and reconciliation, it's a day of 
We have an advocate that stands between us and the Father. We are further separated from the Father. We have somebody plead to him on our behalf. We do legal accounting and books, but we don't let anybody near our hearts. And this is the big obstacle to actually what Christ is doing. We have a false legal theology that teaches people to hide themselves from God instead of coming into intimacy with God. I'm going to tell you, I don't think God can complete his mission of reuniting humanity to himself in perfect union, uh, union until we reject this imperial law lie and stop teeny, teaching these penal, legal, substitutionary, penal substitutionary ideas. The lesson points out the Song of Solomon is inspired book to teach God's beautiful plan for marriage. We all agree? Yeah. Inspired by God, yeah. To teach about the intimacies and love of marriage. Have you ever wondered, though, why God chose Solomon? Yes. Yes. To write a book on the intimacies of marriage. How many wives does Solomon have? 700 plus 300 concubines. Hmm, how is it that God chose him to write a book that is considered the epitome of the divine plan for marriage? Hmm. Do you find any, any questions about that? Well, it's the message that's important, not necessarily the sins of the author. She says uh, it's the message is important, not the, not the sins. Pause. Was God, uh, um, first question, was Solomon the only person in human history that God could inspire with this message? There's only one person in all human history that God could have enlightened with this message. So I, I agree with you, the message is important, not the, the lives of the, of the person or the sins of the person. I agree with you. Second question, do we ever have any declaration, indication, inspired record from God that what Solomon did in marrying 700 wives was sin? We do? Where? I looked for it. What I found in scripture was he was Disciplined and chastised by God for worshiping the false gods of his wife, of his wives. Not for actually having them as wives. It's very precise in why he was disciplined. Because he went after foreign gods and sacrificed to foreign gods. Therefore, the kingdom was taken from him except for one tribe. But never was it said, you're disciplined for having the false wives or the many wives. Why didn't he? This is where we're going with this. One of the bigger questions that I have about that is that the, the being who inspired Solomon's wisdom, the being we know as Jesus of Nazareth, never took a wife at all. So the one being who, who had nine, who had a thousand plus consorts, writes a book on that's considered the ideal of a human intimacy and marriage. His wisdom was inspired by the one man who didn't take, didn't take one wife. We often do not take the message that we don't believe the messenger or we have problems accepting the messenger. Even Elijah, who was a man of God who was translated, was looked disparagingly because of how he dressed and how he acted and because of his mannerisms. And so we often have difficulties with the message because of the vehicle in which it comes. So my understanding as to why God chose Solomon requires a couple of points to be understood first, or it doesn't make sense. First, I think Israel is not only historical, but metaphorical. What I mean by this is there are millions of descendants of Abraham who lived during Bible times, millions. Yet we have recorded in Scripture only a very small number of those people. God, I believe, selected from the real historical events, the events that he wanted recorded in Scripture to tell us and teach us not just historical facts, but larger realities. I think both. 
And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, speaking specifically of Israel, these, these things happened to them, Israel, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So this idea that things happen historically real, but also have a larger teaching lesson. And, and you know, when we get to the sanctuary stuff, and I talk about that, how my view is that Israel are actors on a stage. They're acting out a theater, a drama. They're real historical lives, but their lives have another meaning. Do you remember in Scripture there were seven miracle births besides Virgin Mary? There's one virgin birth, seven other miracle births. Not virgin births, miracle births. And if you want to understand what that means, seven infertile women who God miraculously healed their reproductive organs so that they could then have children. And we know it was them because most of the husbands had other wives and had kids with other wives. So these women were infertile, not, not the husbands. And so seven women that had fertility problems that God miraculously healed. Those, I think, are historical facts. But every one of the seven is metaphorical for Christ. Sarah had Isaac. Isaac is the promised one, and Jesus is the promised one. Rebecca had Jacob. Jacob overcomes his fears and is renamed Israel, the father of the nation, built uh, upon the 12 sons. Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are, but overcame and became the cornerstone of the church built on the 12 apostles. Rachel had Joseph, sold into slavery, but became a ruler of the people. Jesus became a servant um, and uh, is exalted to be the king of kings. Manoah's wife had Samson, blessed with strength to deliver Israel and be a judge over them. And Jesus was, of course, blessed with strength, deliver us from sin and to rule the universe. Hannah had Samuel, fifth one, became the high priest, and Jesus is our high priest. The Shunammite woman had a child who died and rose again, and Jesus died and rose again. And Elizabeth had John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, and Jesus was the greatest of all the prophets. So I, I think we, this is just an example of how history is historic, but it has a larger, deeper meaning if we look for it. And I think much of Israel works this way. I could go on all day with so many examples. So as we think about Solomon with the 700 wives, before we actually answer the question about Solomon, we need to understand Solomon's origins. David committed a terrible sin, seducing Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. We all know the story. And I've asked this question before, but we have to understand this to understand what's going on with Solomon. When did sexual relations between David and Bathsheba stop being acts of sin for David? This is a great question to ask people who are struggling to get out of the imperial law view and get into design law. Because the imperial law view cannot answer this question. The imperial law view answers are things like this. Well, when he repented. And you say, well, what's repentance? Well, when you turn away from sin. Did he turn away from her or did he turn toward her? Well, they'll say when he married her. So God's plans for marriage are superseded by culture. If I go to Saudi Arabia today and marry a second wife because it's legal there, then that's okay. And the church would be perfectly happy with me and it would not be sin. There is no answer for the imperial law, the rule, the rule approach. But when you understand design law, then it becomes very, very clear. Design law is about restoring godliness. So David, his acts to have the adulterous relationship and murder Uriah were all based on selfishness. 
And then he was confronted by Nathan, and he had a repentance experience where he actually had a change of heart, and a new heart and right spirit were given him, and now he's operating on love and trust, on godly principles. And when you operate on those principles, the heart seeks to heal damage it's inflicted. The person wants to restore what it's taken from someone. And in that culture, um, David, well, what David took from Bathsheba, he took her name, her good name, her reputation, her home, her income, her security, her livelihood, her hope of being a mother, and her husband who loved her. He took all this from her. In that culture, the only way David could act in a godly love to restore to her what he took from her was to marry her and to love her. Which he did. Thus David is no longer living in selfishness for himself, but he's living in godly love to help and build up and restore another. Notice in the object lesson now of Israel, David is the king, he is acting initially in selfishness and has this selfish relationship with Bathsheba. And what happened to that child? What's the object lesson? When you sow in selfishness, you reap death. But after David had a new heart and right spirit and he acted in godly love, he also had a child with Bathsheba. And that child is Solomon. The, the child of wisdom. So when you sow in love, you reap wisdom. So as we now turn to Solomon and understand his origins, and he was the uh, he was he came from a relationship in which godly love, where selfishness damaged, but godly love healed, and that's where he came from. And you look at the book song of Solomon in this song. Solomon is a shepherd at one place, and Jesus is depicted as a shepherd. Solomon is the wisest in history, but who is the true person of wisdom, the true source of wisdom? The Bible talks about this in Proverbs and other places. It's Christ. Solomon means, the word actually means peace. Who is the prince of peace? Christ. Solomon is the son of King David. Who is the descendant of David who will reign on his throne as king of kings? Christ. Solomon is the groom in the song. Jesus is the groom to the bride, his church. So in other words, Solomon is not only a historical person, but Solomon is a metaphorical figure representing Christ. Now, As I put it to you like that, I'm going to pause. With this in mind, is there any reason you can think of why Solomon, metaphorical figure for Christ, would have 700 wives and be the one about writing about God's design for marriage? You can't? Hmm. Anybody else? Can anybody else think of a reason? The church has many members. Oh, the church has many members. Does Jesus, as our Savior have intimacy of heart and mind with more than one person? Yes or no? Male. How about, yes, yes, male and female. Does Jesus, as the Son of God, as the intermediary, as the intercessor, have intimacy with more than one species? In other words, more than just human beings. Does he have intimacy of heart, love, with the Intelligences of other. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh. 
Does he? Yes. Yes, he does. What about animals? I'm going I'm to put the animal question off because I don't think animals can enter into the intimacies that we're talking about. Animals can have a heart bond, but they can't have the, the, uh, the, the depths of understanding and, and equality in companionship and friendship that is designed in this type of intimacies. So does Jesus interact, even though he has intimacy in heart and love and mind and and so forth with more than one person, does he treat each individual person as if they're the only one? Is it possible that God had these events recorded in Scripture because they are not only historic, but they teach a larger reality in metaphor of Christ's union with his people? And then can you see, if that's true, how the lesson is quite corrupted. This lesson God wants us to see is quite corrupted when Solomon worships false gods and why God had to take action to demonstrate that the worshiping of false gods was not only wrong for Solomon, for the nation, for Solomon's wives, but also misrepresenting Christ's victory over the God of this world. Sunday's lesson, what's the biblical view of the human body? And they're bringing up the idea that in certain cultures, the body was considered evil and the spirit was considered good. But the biblical view, I think you all know, is that we are embodied beings, that you actually can't experience, grow, share, learn, love outside the body. Your individuality operates through the body. However, because of sin, our bodies are decayed and filled with many diseases and defects that can become the source of temptation to us, either through powerful desires or powerful discomfort can tempt us. So some are tempted to act in ways to seek positive feelings of pleasure, while others are tempted to be angry and frustrated because of powerful feelings of pain and discomfort. This is, of course, why they beat Christ so badly and crucified him. They were trying to inflict pain on his body to tempt him. Last paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, powerful sexual taboos typically exist in many cultures. Married couples thus often find it difficult to communicate in healthy ways regarding their intimate life. Uh, Similarly, children are often deprived of the opportunity to learn about sexuality in the setting of a Christian home where godly values can be integrated with accurate information. The Bible's openness with sexuality calls his people... calls his people to a greater level of comfort with this topic so that this vital aspect of life is treated with respect and dignity so uh, do so great a gift from our creator. So how comfortable are you talking about sex? Because Ryan... Depends on where you are. <laughs> so when uh, Solomon started serving his 700 uh, wives' gods... It probably happened in a way that she asked, they started asking him for something. And he started answering those requests. So isn't the same happening when we ask something in our prayers uh, to God? If he answers in our wrong prayers, he will do the same thing. So, yes, so, yes, so, so you're saying because God loves us, He will not give us things He it's knows will harm us. It's an example how God is not answering our wrong prayers. 
Because if he if he does, then it's gonna be the same like Solomon serving his wife's wrong gods. So God didn't answer their prayers for meat in the desert when he was giving them manna. He didn't bring them quail. God didn't answer their prayers for a king when, when he told them repeatedly through Samuel, don't have a king. But he didn't answer their prayers and select uh, Saul and David for them. So, uh, so I, I, I think the principle you're saying is true. Oftentimes their prayers are not answered because they're harmful for us. But I think it's not an absolute rule. I think that God sometimes does answer prayers that he doesn't want us to have um, if we're insistent and if, we'll, if, if he knows if we don't get what we want, we'll harden our heart against him. He will allow us to experience things that will bring us pain that he would have protected us from had we trusted him. So that in that pain, we stay connected to him and we find healing. What, before we get off the subject of Solomon, if he was the most intelligent man, why would he have married all those heathen women to begin with? So again, I think the object lesson was and we don't know all the details on every one of the marriages. Some of them may have been political. Yeah, but still, him being so intelligent, he should have known that was going to cause trouble. <laughs> if God created us as sexual beings, if this unity in marriage is part of God's design, if it's the culmination of true intimacy and love, which also acts um, as, our, uh, as God's plan um, for unity with us, then why are we uncomfortable talking about it? Let me ask, in Eden, how were Adam and Eve dressed in Eden? They weren't. Well, in light, which means what? When you, would it mean that they had barriers to being known, or would it mean that they were hiding themselves, or would it mean that they were open to being fully known for who they were? So what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? They ran in hid because they were afraid and they began to make coverings to hide themselves. Why? Why did they do that? Because that's what sin had done. It had warped their understanding. Really. So what were they inside themselves experiencing that they would take this action? Fear. Vulnerability. What? Fear. Fear. What else? Guilt and shame. So this is what sin does. It incites a sense of guilt Shame, fear, sense of inadequacy. If anybody really knew me, they wouldn't love me. Fear of rejection. And so we begin to, to cover ourselves because we don't want people to look inside and see who we really are. So we cover ourselves in a variety of ways with physical clothing, with the masks that we wear when we come out in public. We have our masks. You know what I'm talking about? And we don't want people to really get close to us because if we get too close, they'll see below the mask and they won't, they won't like me. And this is part of what the gospel is supposed to do. The woman caught in adultery, caught, drug out before Jesus. This is what was so healing for her. He saw past her mask. Neither do I condemn you. And he loved her anyway. She couldn't believe it. You can't love me. I'm corrupt. I'm a prostitute. I, I'm, I'm horrible. The church and everybody in the community says I deserve stoning. You can't love me. But he did. And it freed her from this guilt and shame. It didn't say what she was doing was healthy. It didn't say what she was doing was in harmony with what would build her up. It was tearing her down. But he didn't have to condemn her because her own actions were destroying her. He loved her and he didn't want to see her do this anymore because it was tearing her down. So if you think about this guilt and shame that we have from the, from the, the break of trust in the garden, in the union of marriage, even in the sinful world, when you come together with your marriage partner, is there a disrobing? 
the taking off of your coverings, revealing of yourself, becoming naked and exposed to the other. Is that happening in marriage? Mm -hmm. And what is required for you to be able to do this without fear, without guilt, and without shame? Trust. Trust and love. love. See, love and trust. Love which is bi-directional. You love the other person, but you also know that you are loved for who you are. You're cherished, you're valued. Not simply for your body. This requires an uncovering of yourself before an uncovering of your body. So that your heart is known and you know the heart of the person you're going to marry. And trust can be experienced. Love and trust cast out fear. When we have come to know the other and find they love us and that they are trustworthy, then we can disrobe both emotionally and physically, and enter into a physical union with our marriage partner. We can talk openly about our most secret selves because we know we are united with the one who loves us and wants what's best for us. So when we get to heaven, how do you think we'll be dressed? (laughs) Will we be hiding ourselves under robes? Or will, will we be known? Fully known. Will we, will we live in fear and shame and guilt in heaven? Will we have intimacy with others? With whom will we have intimacy with others in heaven? Everyone. So why do you think there's so much fear and shame around sex? Because there's so much fear and shame in our hearts. And sex is a place of great vulnerability, of great openness, of placing oneself in a place of undress. And we risk being hurt. We risk being laughed at and rejected. And this is why. Um, I'm going to, very, very quick, uh, Tuesday's lesson, and then I really want to get to Thursday. Tuesday's lesson, it says, uh, Solomon invites her to come with me, and his bride responds, uh, later she invites him, let my beloved come into my garden. It says, Scripture here teaches there is to be no force or manipulation in this intimate setting. No force or manipulation. Why can there be no force or manipulation in this intimate setting? If you want it to function like God, because people can force and manipulate in this setting, but if you do, you don't get what God designed. If you want to get what God designed, why can there be no force and manipulation? Why? The law of liberty. Law of liberty. And so what happens if you force or coerce or manipulate? What happens? Love is damaged. Fear and rebellion is instilled. Destruction of individuality if people stay. So if you understand this, does this apply to God's relationship with his people? That God does not force or manipulate. Does it or not? Yes. 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 Just understanding this one idea, if you can anchor your heart and mind on this one idea, you can eliminate a bunch of theologies as false. There's tons of theologies which are predominant in Christianity. Theologies that teach God is the source of inflicted punishment and death for sin. You recognize me, they're lies. He is not. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the wages of sin. Is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. The Bible teaches that it's deviating and breaking away from God that causes death. 
God does not cause death. But the whole Christian world teaches that you've broken a rule, and God, in order to be just, he must enforce his rules, and therefore God's going to have a tribunal, and he's going to add up all the minutes of sin that you didn't get properly pardoned and legally forgiven, and he's going to torture you the length of time you deserve before he kills you. But you can trust him because he loves you. Amen. You see, it's corrupt. You can reject all that. It does not work. You cannot have an intimate relationship of love and trust with manipulation and threat. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph, says, God has a special purpose in creating humankind as male and female. While each bears his image, the joining of gender opposites in the one flesh of marriage reflects the unity within the Godhead in a special way. The union of male and female also provides the procreation of a new life, an original human expression of the divine image. Will we have gender opposites in heaven? Do angels have gender opposites as far as we've been revealed through the inspired record? Did Jesus say, regarding questions of marital intimacy in heaven, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Whose wife will she be? In heaven, there'll be neither marriage nor giving in marriage, but you'll be like the angels. You just told me angels don't have gender opposites. Are we going to be like the angels? And not give in marriage or be given in marriage? Well, I guess we don't really believe Jesus do. He did, Jesus was confused. What about the original creation before sin? Wasn't there a female there? Yes, there was in Eden. But Jesus wasn't talking about reversing time. He's moving forward in time. But if we're going to be known as we're known here, I'm a woman. I don't want to be a man when I get to heaven or a neuter or whatever. A neuter. (laughs) But you will be a neuter creation. (laughs) That was just a pun. I'm sorry. The point I'm making here with the question, and we, I, I don't think we can have an absolute answer. I really can't. Uh, but, but I'm making the point with the question, is gender the primary point of Christianity? That's the point I'm making, yes. It looks like uh, this uh, gender separation or creation in the first place was uh, for the purpose of partnership. And if the purpose of partnership is changing then the purpose of gender separation is gone. So gender is not the primary point in salvation. What is the primary point in salvation? There's one primary point. Your character. Your character. Have you trusted God, open your heart for indwelling of the Spirit, for intimacy and recreation to Christ's likeness? That's the key. So the second paragraph, though, let's read the second paragraph. Scripture disapproves of all that alters and destroys God's image in humankind. By placing certain sexual practices off limits, God guides his people toward the right purposes of sexuality. When, humans experience, when human experience is confronted by God's precepts, the soul is convicted of sin. Did you notice that the paragraph focuses on sexual pra- practices? But Jesus focused on... What's going on in the heart? What happens if a person has a heart desire they never practice, but they desire it? As you think in your heart, so Ah, as you think in his heart. But see, this again goes back to what law do you operate under? Under the imposed human law model, it's all good. As long as you don't behaviorally act out, you're good. Jesus said, no, you're not good. If you lust in your heart, you've already got a problem. Because that's what, that's where the character is operating. So if, imagine this. 
to what, what, if, what happens to a person who practices male-female sexual intimacy within a legal marriage that happened in a church, but their heart actually desires someone of the same sex? Well, if you can't get your mind around that, let me give you this scenario. Imagine this. You're heterosexual, exactly like probably most of you are. But imagine for a moment you lived in this culture where 97% of the population is homosexual and heterosexuality is considered evil and you will be stoned if you come out openly as a heterosexual. Uh, So you marry someone of the same sex. What would it be like for you to have intimacy with them? Would that be a positive, uplifting experience or would it be damaging and destructive to you? So what if a person is homosexual but because of societal pressures, they enter into a heterosexual marriage. Would that be positive and uplifting or damaging and destructive? Would it have them be truthful and honest, or would it have them live a lie? But do you understand, many Christians want that exact action. Just behave. Live that way, even though your heart's not there. In Romans chapter 1, Now, starting in verse 18, Paul describes the wrath of God being revealed against people in his day, and he gives a long list of the reasons why it happens, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to attain the image of God. They preferred worshiping images with their own hands. In other words, this is fertility cult, Roman cult, and, and, and idol worship. And because of this, a whole long list of bad things happen. And here's part of what he describes in verses 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Keep going. We'll come back to that. I just don't want you to miss that first phrase because most, most, most of the time people do. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, he gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural one. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So, did you notice that the first sexual impurity listed by Paul was not homosexual impurity? It was heterosexual impurity. Sexual promiscuity. He goes on to further specify a different type, which is exchanging natural relationships for unnatural. It's an additional type of, of corruption of the sexual intimacies. Now, let me ask you this. Can you exchange a blue shirt for a red shirt if you don't possess a blue shirt? Can you make that exchange if you don't possess a blue shirt? No, you cannot exchange natural for unnatural unless you first possess natural. Paul is not talking about what we talk about as homosexuality today. He's talking about people who are clearly, unequivocally heterosexual, but through these corrupt fertility cult practices, inflame themselves with desires that they previously didn't have. Thus, they exchanged what they naturally had for something they didn't naturally have. That's what the Bible's condemning. Now, we talked about we want to oppose things that damage the image of God or, or destroy the image of God. Let me ask you this. If we think about the image of God, is God a being with perfect vision or is God blind? So does blindness represent God? Should we oppose activities which cause blindness? Should we oppose activities which cause blindness? Yes. 
Yes, we absolutely should. We actually have statutes and laws that it's, uh, it's uh, uh, illegal for an employer to have a welder weld without giving proper eye protection. We've got statutes to protect against doing that. Should we oppose people who are blind? Interesting. In Old Testament times, now going back to this idea that uh, Israel is not only historical, they're metaphorical. Because many people, well, how do we handle all the Old Testament texts about this? In Old Testament times, times, Levites with bad vision could not function as priests. Any eye disease, they could not function as a priest. Should we set up this rule, because it's in the Bible, in our churches, in any pastor who needs uh, corrective lenses or any other eye problem, they cannot serve in our church? Should we set that up? It's a biblical principle for the Levites. Hmm. What about leprosy? Leprosy, if you were a leper in Bible times, you couldn't socialize in the community. You couldn't partake and participate in temple services. Because leprosy was a metaphor for sin, because leprosy damages the pain fibers so you don't feel pain, sin damages your conscience so you don't feel the conviction that it's wrong. So it was a metaphor for sin. Does that mean today lepers should be banned from Christianity and they can't participate in God's salvation? What about... Did you know um, in Scripture, let me give you some more instances from Scripture, regarding a priest. The priest must not marry uh, women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands. Leviticus 21.7. No, that's not true. I'll get to that one in a moment. That's the high priest. Okay, not the priest. So the priest couldn't marry uh, someone who had been a prostitute. So today, should we tell a woman who, like Mary Magdala, prostitute, but she came to Christ, gave her heart to it, now reconverted, now she doesn't live as a prostitute anymore. But if you're a a leader in the church, a pastor, you can't marry her because we'll have to relieve you from your job if you do. Should we apply that rule today? Or uh, somebody's husband has cheated on his wife multiple times. And he's unfaithful, so he divorces. She divorces him. If the pastor marries that woman, should we relieve him and pull his credentials? Because priests weren't allowed to do that. Interesting. Think about why these rules are there. It's metaphorical. It's, teaching a, it's theater. It's teaching a lesson on stage. The daily priests could not serve. Any priest could not serve. Son of Le, uh, descendant of Aaron if they had any physical deformity, a crippled foot, a crippled hand, uh, lesions or sores on their bodies, they could not serve. Should we ban from our pastor all pastors who have any type of physical infirmity? Well, why don't we want to apply this? It's in the Bible. And this is the same place you're going to get the rules on homosexuality. The same exact place. The high priest must not let his hair become unkempt. Should we relieve from the... Um, the uh, presidency of our conferences and unions, any pastor who lets their hair get windblown. (laughs) They also couldn't be bald. If they were bald, they couldn't serve. Shameful. Uh, The high priest could not enter a place where the dead body was, including his own parents if they died. He could not. So if, if if we have a 
conference president whose parents die and they, he goes to the funeral. Should he be relieved from office? High priest couldn't serve if he went to the funeral of his own parents. Why? Theater. What's in the theater? Who's the high priest represent? Christ. And if Christ, and Christ is going to do what with the dead? Raise the dead. So the high priest can't go and bury the dead. It misrepresents the theater. This is all theater. And so all these object lessons are not reality in their literal application. They are the reality of the plan of salvation acted out theatrically. A high priest um, also could not marry a widow, divorced woman, defiled by prostitute, only a virgin. Because the high priest represents who? And the church has to be made pure by Christ. Has to be a pure woman, not a harlot, not the one who goes after many other gods. Her heart must be devoted to him. And so you see the theatrical lessons here. Sadly, many people will cherry-pick Old Testament text about homosexuality and apply them as some rule that should be applied to all humanity and not recognize it was simply they had a theater, they had a stage, they had, a, a, they had props, they had really cool costumes, and they had a script. We call it scripture. It was a script. To theatrically act out a larger reality. Our goal, our purpose, God is calling us, John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants or slaves, I call you friends, because slaves or servants don't understand their masters. They just do what they're told. They follow the rules, but they have no clue why and what they mean. He's calling us into friendship into intimacy, into at-one-ment. We, we skipped the lesson on marriage should be between friends. And God wants us to have that intimacy of friendship with him where we are known and we know him and we know his purposes and we know how, what he's trying to achieve. And then how do we treat the homosexual? We love them and bring them to Christ as they are. And if there's anything in that person's life that God wants them to change, it's up to God and the Holy Spirit to bring them to conviction and change them. It's not up to us. Our job is to love them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God who has been trying to teach us your realities. But there is an enemy afoot who wants us to misunderstand, who wants us to view the Scripture and your creation through an imperial lens, that, that idea that you function no different than a dictator. Lord, free us from this distortion. Help us come back to see you as our creator, the builder of reality, and your designs are the laws upon which all life are, are built to operate, that we can be effective witnesses for you at this time, that the world will be lighted, and you'll come soon. In your holy name, amen.